Hey, this is Scott Ackerman of Comedy Bang Bang. You're listening to Holly and Dave of the What Difference Does It Make podcast. And really, what difference does it make? Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I am so ready to laugh today, Dave, but I think that might put a little pressure on our guest. What do you think? How are you feeling today? Should we start this over? Actually, I should because I just realized, you know, we have a question mark in the name of our podcast. What difference does it make? So should I? What difference does it make? Should I always raise my inflection? The only reason I say this is because we are talking to the host of comedy, Bang Bang, two exclamation marks. And I always need to put the right inflection. So what difference does it make? Uh, or what difference does it make? Now, that's more of a statement, right? Well, how does Morrissey say it? What difference does it make? What difference does it make? Maybe I should just say, welcome to what difference does it make? Maybe I'll try that. I say that because now we are looking at the top 10. This is it. This is where we've concluded our look at 1986. This is the episode where we, we look at songs number 10. All the way up to number one, the biggest hit in K-Rock in the year 1986. Kind of cool. I'm pinching myself. I can't believe we're here. So special episode. We need a special man to do this. Who's going to do the heavy lifting today? Well, it's a special person that we need. But yes, today's special person happens to be a man. Well, His well, name said- is Scott Ackerman. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> he is the Ackerman. All right. So the name of the first, it was Comedy Death Ray which where we discovered it on Indy 1031 when it was an internet radio. I didn't remember it as an internet radio, but it was internet radio. And now it became a podcast comedy bang, bang and more comedy, bang, bang, comedy, bang, bang. Just sing the theme in your head. If you have a question of where the emphasis goes. Yeah, true. And the name of the book is comedy, bang, bang. So comedy, bang, bang. It was a, a podcast, still a podcast. They just completed 800 episodes. It's uh TV show that has five seasons on it, timeless, as we've uh, just reviewed it again. It's still amazing. We're going to talk all about Comedy Bang Bang. We're going to talk about all the music because Scott grew up in Southern California. He listened to K-Rock. He is a music fan and he has opinions, which we love. We like opinions. Yeah, this is the the reason we wanted to talk to him. One is because we are fans of his work, but we also knew he was a huge music fan. So perfect. That's like two guests in one. It was, but it's just one. Bang, 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 bang. There you go. (laughs) Bang, bang. Here we go. So my baby shot me down. That's a uh, a share song, right? Bang, bang. Bang, bang. I shot you down. Bang, bang. You hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful sound. Bang, bang. I used to shoot you down. Written by Sonny Bono. So there you go. Bang, bang. Let's go into this now. Okay. We're not talking Cher. We're talking Scott Ackerman. On the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hello. Hello. Hello, Hello Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We wanted to actually, you know, you've, you've got this book coming out, which is, loved it. We love it. Comedy, bang, bang. Comedy, bang, bang. Uh, yes, you're saying it correctly. Thank you so much for stressing the bangs. Most people just say comedy, bang, bang, and then they mumble the bang, bang. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate you shouting them to the heavens. 
<laughs> right. And if you listen to the theme, you know how it's supposed to be said. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, most people, that, that's the thing is like, it's supposed to be sung. That's what a theme song is for. So I don't know why people say, oh, from Comedy Bang Bang, they should be singing it. From Comedy Bang Bang. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know how to get people to do what I want, but. Uh, well, after this, they're not going to hear it any other way. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Was that a Reggie Watts song or is that uh, something? You yes. Said? Reggie improvised that. The episode where we changed the name of the show, I think it was episode 102 because it was two years into the show. He was the guest and he had done the theme song to the original for the original title of the podcast. And so I said, hey, can you improvise three different songs for Comedy Bang Bang with the new title? And we'll pick we'll have the listeners pick which one. And so he did one, which was sort of like a renaissance kind of harpsichord kind of sounding thing. And I was like, mm, boy, not very good. And they did another one, which was kind of a slow dirge, as I recall. And then off the top of his head, then he started this one and it was just perfect. I mean, we use the the version that he improvised right there in the moment. It's it's so good. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I hope the listeners vote for this one. And I was willing to press my thumb on the scale and if they didn't um, just to choose that one. But they did. They they knew quality when they heard it. Maybe Reggie was uh, putting his thumb on the scale. Like, I'm going to give him two shit songs. And then, yeah, the one I really also, I think he was voting a lot, too. Uh, he was he was really invested in, in, in the process. <laughs> I actually did listen to the, you did a, it was in an episode where uh, he talked about how it came together. Yeah. How, how the, how the theme song came together. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun times. That was of course, 12 years ago. We're at the 14th anniversary, 14 years. How long have you been doing this show? Not 14. Four years. Four years. Four years. Okay. You'll get yeah. there. I hope so. Yeah, you- how long is the eighties? <laughs> I think it was about 10 years. So if you just start over it's, right now and go week by week. It's kind of like MASH. We're going to do it like uh, the Korean War. It was uh, yeah. just a few years. The ago. Korean War was, a lot exactly. of people don't know, the Korean War was 10 days. It was so short. Wow. And MASH, they went on for 14 years. And it's like, basically what people don't know is MASH was shot in real time, like the show 24. <laughs> And so they did 14 episodes, but it was a half hour at a time. So, and that lasted the 10 days. <laughs> See, these are the fun facts we need. That uh, this secret given yeah, away. Yeah. yeah. Showbiz secrets. By the way, you have an avatar poster right behind you. I do. Which, which you have not hung up, but is covering a window. My husband used to work for Fa. There's a letter. If you see the bottom left-hand corner, that's actually a letter that was written to the people who helped bring the film to home entertainment. Is your husband Navi? <laughs> yeah. He might be. <laughs> there's a big blue tail sticking in the that's, back of your that, head. So. Yeah. <laughs> Again, Hollywood secrets. Don't give away all these Hollywood <laughs> secrets. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, okay. So you mentioned episode 102. Yeah. You just did episode 800. So congratulations on that. That's insane. Thanks. Yeah, we did episode 800 and the 14th anniversary is May 1st. Yeah, I mean, eight, 800 seems like a lot. And and then I, I as we were doing episode 800, I realized, I was like, I, I wonder how many of the Simpsons have done. And we passed the Simpsons maybe about 40 episodes or so ago. So, I mean, I, I never thought I would do something that had more episodes than the Simpsons. We will never surpass 60 minutes, I think. And soap operas like Days of Our Lives, but at least we passed the Simpsons. See, you should have been doing it in real time like MASH did. Then you'd have yes. like 
you know, over. Podcasts like, are done in real time, but they're, yeah, they're not done in real time oh, well, in my true. life. That's but, true. Yeah. So, okay, wait, is it going to be mathematically impossible for some reason for you not to, to bypass 60 minutes or surpass well, they, 60 they, minutes? It's not mathematically impossible. Here's what would have to happen. All of the anchors on 60 minutes would have to pass away very soon, which is not impossible. <laughs> That's considering how up there all of those guys are. The show would have to be canceled. It's currently at around 2,400 and some odd episodes. Then I would have to go for another eh, 20 years maybe after they were canceled just to pass them. Or I would have to start doing daily episodes, which let's be honest, is not going to happen. You're young. Yeah, that's yeah. true. You my, episodes are, my episodes are about 90 minutes. So it's kind of like, yeah. you know, why are they sleeping on that extra 30? Older. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> Leslie Stahl has to go to bed after 60. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it would be funny the older they get, they just keep whittling it down to like 57 <laughs> minutes, 55 minutes. And then they're like, look, we only have about five minutes this week. To be honest, we have to go to bed. So kind of like a doomsday clock. Okay, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's one minute till till 60 minutes is over. You know, then it's like, okay, we're just exploding the whole show. That's it. I think I think most shows should do that, though. I've said that about Saturday Night Live is is it's an hour and a half. They maybe have 10 good minutes per week. It's like, just make it 10 minutes. Just like it comes on at 1130. They go live from New York. It's Saturday night. 10 minutes later, they go, that's it. We're out. We're out of good stuff. Go to bed. Go home. A lot of less, a lot less complaints. Yeah. I don't know. Two are you, hours. Are you trying to keep your ties to Lord Michaels no, still intact? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why are you dancing? We're hoping. Well, your show is two hours. It's clearly two hours of gold. But with, mm. uh, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, right, the, the exactly. Thing about podcasts is they are meant to be ephemeral in a way. Like yeah. you're supposed to listen to them and and not, never go back to them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, that's sort of what SNL is. Not to slam SNL because there are a lot of great people on it. But um, it's always been inconsistent. But the, the the reason people watch it is it's live, and you can kind of go like, well, it was good for a live show. Yeah. Uh, like if they had worked on it for real. Uh, like a real sketch show, I would say like, oh boy, none of this is any good. None of this is working, but it was, it was good for being live. <laughs> People do go back because I went back because you said it was episode 800. I went back to episode one. Oh no. Exactly. It starts off. You're a little shaky. I mean, I'm, have you reviewed this? I, I, I try, I try not to listen to any episode ever again, but uh, especially those. Yeah, that's funny because I, that was one point you made in episode 800. They're like, what is your favorite out of the 800? And you're like, I can only remember five. And that's the same with us. When people ask us about what our favorite episode is, I like, as soon as it's released, I completely forget everything yeah. that, that we did. It would be impossible to have Mary Lou Henner disease about podcasting because <laughs> like to remember every single thing you ever said. On a podcast, that it would drive you insane. I'm surprised people listen to them. I'm surprised I do them. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing is confounding. The podcast is your radio show. You had a one-hour radio show on Indie 1031. Yeah, which, which is a local Los Angeles, or was a local Los Angeles radio station. Correct, yeah. with uh, Actually, we just talked to Max Tull. Oh, who's who's Max Tull? He was the, the program director at the time. Was he I really? Be, I believe. Oh, okay. uh, there might not have no, been overlap. Not, not by the time I, I was there. No, but, it's... Yeah. Okay, it said he started in 2008, and he was the PD in 2008, and I believe... I believe... See, what happened was the radio station got taken off the air in 2009. Right. So it was no longer on terrestrial radio, and I, it was my favorite, favorite radio station. I loved it so much. Oh, okay. And then the last year of it, probably when this gentleman came on, they started trying to save it. 
And the the way that you try to save a radio station is by playing hits. And so suddenly what was like my favorite radio station suddenly started playing a lot of Green Day songs. (laughs) And then it was gone like suddenly. And then it went to internet only because they wanted to keep the brand. They wanted to keep the, they thought it was a valuable brand and that it would come back or something. So they wanted to keep it alive. So it went to internet only, but they had to fire all of the DJs because the DJs cost money and they were no longer having any advertising coming in. But my friend, Joe Escalante had a legal advice show on the station. And that was the one show that had advertisers because he had a deal with legal zoom. And so they were able to pay him to do the show, but they were looking for people who would do shows for free because otherwise they just played random songs like all day long. And I had been doing bits like comedy bits on Joe Escalante. He was the morning person for a while. I was doing comedy bits on his drive time show. And he said, Oh, you know, Scott knows a lot of stand up comedians. He could probably like have a comedy show where he interviews them for you and he would do it for free. So, and I was thrilled because I loved Indy 1031. I've always loved radio. So I went in and, and just, you know, did what I thought, what I had envisioned to be a, almost like proto WTF with Mark Marin before Mark Marin, where I would just interview comedians. And the third episode where I interviewed Greg Barrett, I remember the program director at the time, Chuck, Chuck P, he came into me and said, that was really boring. When I gave you this show, I thought you were going to like have comedians on like doing bits and doing comedy. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I could pivot to that. So I then started having comedians on actually doing their material. And then I pivoted into comedians coming on and doing characters. And that's when the the format really gelled is when people started doing characters on the show. So it became a combination. If you haven't heard the show, Comedy Bang Bang, it's become a combination of me talking to regular people, regular celebrities. Like recently we've had on Jason Alexander or David Cross. And then we also have comedians who are playing fake people who are just lunatics. And so that's the long story of the show in Indy 1031. But I did it for a year over there until I finally realized that internet only radio, uh, no one listened to it. And I was better off just doing it as a podcast. It's great. And you've created quite a cast of characters. I mean, it reminds you must be an SCTV yeah. fan. It sounds like Melonville. Oh, yeah. Sounds like Melonville to me. Like, you know, like all these, you know, you got your Earl Camembert, your Edith Brickley, you know, all the all these guys are coming in and they're insane. And you're what is your you're trying to hold it all together are you sort of kind of trying to hold it together sort of yeah i'm just trying to i'm trying to like my job as a host i feel like is to use whatever tactics i can in order to find something funny about what's going on right so sometimes people come in and my job is simply to get out of the way and be like oh really oh you did that (laughs) because they're just running with it you know and then sometimes someone will come in with you know, admittedly a thin premise for their character. And my job is to take it as far as it can go before I realize it's not really working and then try to take it in another direction. And and then if that doesn't work, take it in another direction. And, and basically it's just like a test to try to find where the joke is, you know? So that's, that's kind of what I do, but I am the straight man on the show. Yeah. And it sounds like it, it's all one take. Is that, you just let yeah. it roll. It is. You just let yeah. it roll and, and whatever, ha- if it bomb, you know, it's, yeah, it's we don't, you. we don't talk about what we're going to talk about or anything. Usually what it is, is a comedian will come in and they'll sit down and I say, what's your name? And what do you do? And that's all I really want to know. And and sometimes if someone's doing the show for the first time, they'll start explaining the bit to me and I go, oh, no, no, no. I just, I want to hear it in real time so I can 
you know, experience it in real time and react to it in real time. And so, yeah, it's all just uh, improvised there in the moment and we put it out and, and um, somehow people still are listening after 800 episodes. So because this is all improvised, you are not rejecting any character. Well, that, you know, it's interesting because there is a, there, there's the rule that I think you're referring to Holly of yes. And in improv, which Mm -hmm. to explain it for people who have no idea what that is when you're improvising, especially on stage or on a podcast, Someone comes in and says, hi, my name is Joe. Your job as the other person in the scene is not to say, no, your name is not Joe, because that's denying someone. And then and then the other person goes like, uh, yes, it is. Like, it just ends a scene, right? So if a person comes in and says, I had a really rough night last night, you're supposed to say, oh, you had a rough night last night? And the and part is like, and I also had a rough night. Let's talk about our rough nights. You know, and that that opens a scene up to, when I had a, a talk show, a, a TV talk show, that's what I would tell the celebrity guests is, is I had a whole bunch of crazy questions I would ask them. And I would say, get into the habit of just saying yes to every question, like answering yes. Because my questions are usually like, hey, Ellie Kemper, on the office, uh, boy, I really have painted myself yeah, in the corner because right. I can't remember who Ellie Kemper played on the office. But uh, was the rece- she Pam? She was a receptionist. Um, she was were, a receptionist. Were you, yeah. you know, something, something crazy. Were you also in love with Jim and you uh, were mad at, at Pam for this? You know, just say that's a question. It's a terrible question, but say that's the question. So improv Ellie- is your thing, right? Is that what's happening? You're, you're good at this. Right, yes. <laughs> okay. All if right, Ellie just- Kemper then says, no, I wasn't in love with Jim, then... Everything ends. Where do you go? And we go, okay, next question. But if she says, yeah, I was in love with Jim. I used to sit there at my desk and uh, I would stare at him the entire time and the camera would zoom in on me, you know, then something can continue. And so that's normally what improv is all about is just like not shutting down a premise that someone else brings in. Now, to be fair, if a premise isn't working, I'll often shut it down and try to pivot and do another direction. So I don't know, like rules are made to be broken, but that, but that's the general idea. Okay. So you're known for asking our questions. Was that like between two ferns, did you come up with questions and just like, these guys have no idea what I'm going to ask. Neither Zach doesn't know what I'm going to to throw out or what, how did that, how did that magic work? We (laughs) we haven't, we never used to talk about between two ferns in the process of how we would make them because we wanted it to be back when it was more of a current concern. We wanted it to be a little bit of a mystery. When we did the movie in 2019, Zach really wanted to show the bloopers at the end of the movie. And I was a little against it because I was like, we've never done that. We've never shown anyone the, you know, the process. But uh, he was right. I mean, there uh, people like them more than the movie itself. So <laughs> I think you can see from the bloopers. Yeah, we never tell the acts what the questions are, the inter- interviewees. We never tell them what the questions are going to be. We're just having fun in the moment. Everyone's cracking up while it happens. And then we edit everything out and make it seem like it's a really dry, angry conversation between people. Has some brilliant editing. Was that? Was there a show? Was there something you saw like on, I don't know, on Merv Griffin or, or Diana Shore or something where like, oh, this is super awkward. I need to elaborate or just expand on whatever, you know, this guy just asked whatever he comes into his mind. Yeah. You mentioned Merv Griffin, by the way. His estate was very kind and gave us a lot of clips that we used in the movie. Well, first of all, it came out of two things. First of all, Zach is a great stand-up comedian and he would do a lot of crowd work and he would talk to people in the crowd a lot and have really awkward conversations with them. And that's just his personality. But he and I both grew up 
doing public access talk shows in high school for me. And I think in college for him, we both had uh, talk shows on public access TV, which if people don't know what it is now, which you may not, um, <laughs> the government uh, is supposed to allow one channel on the airwaves to be for the public. And if anyone in the public can sign up and have a show and do a show, and it just leads to bizarre, uncomfortable, weird shows, right? So but he and I both had these shows and we were kind of fascinated with public access. And so I was talking to Zach, I had a, a, a sketch show that I was doing. And I said, hey, I'd love for you to do something on it. And he said, you know, I've always really wanted to do a public access talk show called Between Two Ferns. And I laughed because I knew immediately I was like, oh, my God, that's so perfect. Because when you're doing public access talk shows, the only set dressing you have available to you are these plants. Because you're, you basically have black duvetine behind you. And it just would look like nothing except you got to put these giant plants in there to fill up the frame. Right. So I just, I love the title. And so I had also been talking to Michael Sarah about doing something on the show. And I said, Hey, Michael, do you want to do, this is the concept we have. It's between two ferns. It's a talk show with Zach. And he was like, okay, I'm in. And we were in a basement and we just filmed it just kind of messing around and trying stuff out. And, and, you know, like Zach was trying stuff and, and Michael was trying stuff and we were shouting like ideas from the other room in, in the basement. And then um, our editor, Dan Strange, who directed a lot of the episodes too, he put it all together in this great way that just made it so uncomfortable and so awkward. It was very cool. And we just stumbled into it and, and we put it up on the internet it was very popular, like over a million people, which back then was giant, watched it. And we were like, well, that was cool. And we never thought we would do another one, <laughs> which is so weird. And then Jimmy Kimmel said, hey, I want you to do another one with me. And we said, oh, no, we already did that. <laughs> and he was like, no, you can do more. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. It's a talk show. We can do more episodes, I guess. And so then, you know, our friend John Hamm wanted to do one and, and Zach had The Hangover coming out. So Bradley Cooper ended up doing one and it just it snowballed and became a big thing, which is really, I think, one of the best ways to have success in this business is to just kind of do something for fun and then stumble into success, you know, which which yeah. I, I'm really appreciative of, which is sort of like the comedy Bang Bang podcast. I was just doing it for fun because I love radio yeah, and it became popular. Did you pitch it as a TV show? Did you ever visualize it as a TV show, Comedy Bang Bang? Uh, yeah, like I mean, we did it for five years. It was, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm sorry. I do know that it was a TV show. I was you just do know that. I do know that. <laughs> Which is I'm why just, you asked the question. You're yeah. asking about the process of how I pitched and visualized it. <laughs> yeah. um, that was a weird one because the podcast had gotten popular and it had a contingent of fans who worked for the network IFC who basically just offered me the show. And I thought it was going to be more like the podcast, which when I say ephemeral is like, I thought it was going to be more like Andy Cohen's watch what happens live or whatever, but with comedians doing fake people. But when they said, Oh no, you're only going to do 10 episodes. I said, Oh, it's got to be more of a real thing then because only a lunatic would go back and rewatch like old watch what happens live episodes. But if I'm only going to do 10 per season, which then it turned into 20. And then one season we did 40. I need them to be more of a real sketch show. So the comedy bang bang TV show is a little bit different than the podcast. It doesn't have that loose kind of feel to it. 
because I wanted rewatchability and it has it. I mean, it's some people's favorite show, which is so delightful to me. It really was my ode to comedy. You mentioned SCTV earlier with the TV show. I really just wanted to kind of put all of my comedy heroes who would agree to be on the show on it. Unfortunately, only one SCTV person agreed to be on it, but Dave Thomas was played my father on the show. (laughs) Um, And then I tried to get as many like SNL people on the show and kids in the hall. We got three of the kids in the hall uh, to be on the show. And I would sort of like check them off, you know, all the UCB four were on it. And then as well as like a ton of new talent as well. If you watch that show now, which it's increasingly difficult to do, it's on AMC plus, but I guess it's on YouTube now. You watch it, it really is just me saying like, here's what I love about comedy, the new stuff, the old stuff. And for some people, it's their favorite show, which is very gratifying. Uh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> I've got a cough now. Oh my uh, gosh. You're so, you're so emotional I like, I, <laughs> oh with God. what I said. I mean, I, I didn't realize it was so touching, <laughs> it, but it is. I'll take it. It wasn't exactly Scott Ackerman. Were you playing a character on the TV show? It felt like a guy who's just kind of self-absorbed or just not aware of everything, but, and everyone hated you. Yeah, (laughs) it's, it's, it definitely, (laughs) it's funny because the character changes from season one to about season two and a half, where I was playing it a little more like myself in the first season, a little more like just dry, sarcastic or whatever. And then we amped up the most annoying parts of my personality (laughs) (laughs) as it went along the most self-centered narcissistic, uh, annoying you know like my performance my delivery was basically like what's the most annoying way I can say this line (laughs) you know so that was fun to do was really just like once we locked into what was working about it was sometimes on the show I was very human and very caring almost like a parody of uh, TGIF shows and then sometimes I was just the most narcissistic creep on it but that was uh, that was always really fun to play. Sammy Modlin I guess kind of like that. Yeah Yeah. exactly yeah (laughs) never got Eugene Levy on the show uh, refused to appear refused weirdly that is true but wow um, okay oh wow do this or i don't have time to do this no it was it was a uh a hard no a hard it, no i believe there was a uh, a person who worked at the network his agent did not care for so we got a a very stern refusal oh, man. Oh. It didn't have anything to do with the show i think it had to do with the network we'll go with that story <laughs> but i love him Yes, we do. Now, okay, we figured out we got 800 episodes of uh, this this, sh- this show, this com- comedy bang this bang show. This show, comedy bang bang. We've got uh, five seasons of the TV show, and now you're like, you know what? Uh, we we should put this in book form. What you know, what brought that on? <laughs> well, that book came about. I never really even thought of doing it. Strangely enough, but the editor at Abrams reached out to me and said, I, I really think you should do a book and here's what I think it should be. And she pitched me her vision for the book, which was just really made me excited. And her vision was basically just, you know, I don't want you to write a book about the podcast or behind the scenes of the podcast or really any of the stories I've been telling here or anything like that. She really wanted it to feel as if you're listening to the podcast, but you're reading you know? And so it was an interesting process trying to figure out what it would be. But I was, I was very inspired by books. Like one one book that was very inspiring to me when I was growing up as a comedy fan who wanted to get into comedy was the late night with David Letterman book, which came out in 84, maybe. I think I have it actually. You have it. Yeah. I I read it over and over and over. And it, it taught me how to write comedy because the first section of the book were all monologue jokes. And I was like, 
oh, you can do that with a monologue joke. You can phrase it like this. You can, it, it taught me the structure of a monologue joke of it. Like it was a, a movie theater owner passed away last night. His funeral is at 150, 315, <laughs> or, you know, 545. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's interesting. You can do that with a joke. I was inspired by that. So what the book ended up being is I reached out to all of the collaborators from the podcast, all of the incredible comedians who come on and do these characters. And I said, I want you to write stuff as these characters. And so it's a combination of pieces that the characters have written. There are also posters there. There's a lot of art in it. It's jam packed with a lot of comedy in it. And it's all new stuff. It's not like a rehash of stuff we've talked about on the show before. It's all new things that they've never talked about on the show before. So it's really exciting, I think, if you're a fan of the podcast, because it's just like they don't make comedy books really all that much anymore. You know, I mean, standups will sort of like write a, a transcription of their act sometimes, but you don't see a lot of like just pure comedy books. And that's what this is. It's just so many different styles because the collaborators are all different. So many different styles of comedy, so many different types of things are in the book. It's really exciting for me to, to get it out there. The book has kept me in stitches. There's so much in there. There's so much, like so many bits packed in there. How long? From soup to nuts? Yeah, I feel like it must have been. I know we got our release date pushed back because it was taking longer. So I feel like it must have been from start to finish at least a year and a half, if not two years. I'm not really sure. But one of the things was we never could quite figure out how many pages we had <laughs> to yeah. work with. Yeah. So but because a lot of it was like, you know, there are 35 different contributors, I think, and some people like Paul F. Tompkins or Andy Daly doing multiple characters that mm -hmm. they perform on the episode, multiple pieces within the book. So it was just purely for a while. It was like me recruiting people saying, Hey, will you write something for the book and seeing what we got back then needing more and needing more and needing more. And then the last six months of it was pretty much like, how many pages is this? You know, it was like <laughs> finding the artists to make the art for everything and then figuring out how many pages we had how many pages we needed to fill. And then that was the last month was us thinking that we had more pages than we had allotted <laughs> for and then trying to figure out what to cut and then them actually putting the book together and saying, no, you're two pages short. <laughs> <laughs> and so then like the last basically like week me going out to a couple people going, can you write one page for me, please? You know, so it's a lot like making a sketch show where you have a lot of disparate yeah elements and you try to put them together in a cohesive narrative to me. And that was our editor's vision for it in the first place. And so when I heard that she would work like that, and I don't think anyone's put together a book like that at the at Abrams at the company before. So everyone else other than her were very confused by this book and like <laughs> saying, when do we get the when's it finished? Like, when's the first draft? And we're like, there is no first draft. Like, it'll be done whenever, like, we get enough stuff to put in it and then it's done. Thank you for taking a look at it. It's super exciting to me that people are going to finally get to see it because it's been so long. It's a great, like a companion piece. You know, we have gotten one review from someone who has never heard the podcast and they still liked it. I was very right. concerned about that, that if you had never heard what the podcast was before, that you would be just baffled by the book. But that review really liked it. And so I think it comes across even if you've never heard the podcast and you're just interested in comedy. But if you know yeah. the podcast, it's just like a treasure trove of stuff for you yeah. that, oh, that's in there. Oh, for sure. And yeah, one of the 
fun things for me was your like Dungeons and Dragons cards. Like I got to see mm. who the what these characters look like and uh, and, yeah. and their strengths and weaknesses and things like yeah, that. Yeah, Andy Daly, who's a brilliant improv comedian, he does a lot of different characters on the show. And we were trying to figure out, you know, what we could do with all of those. And he has some pieces. He has, you know, some cowboy poetry in there and he's got uh, <laughs> some workout tips and stuff. But for all the other characters, we were like, what if we just did Dungeons and Dragons style playing cards with all the characters <laughs> that you can actually use to play a game with. And he wrote all of his strengths and weaknesses. And then his brother did all the arts for how his oh, characters nice. look and all that. And we, and we have a ton of great artists who've worked in the book. Some people who have made fan art in the past, we reached out and said like, Hey, we really like this. Like for instance, the Hollywood facts board game was based on a piece of fan art that someone just mocked up. And so we reached out to him and said, hey, you know, can we license this from you and expand it? You know, there's uh, the, the Mink Salmon Brothers art in there is from a really great animator who animated them at one point just for fun, you know? So we've been like reaching out to fans to to contribute. But then there are people like Mitch Gerards who is a DC Batman artist who did six pages in the book with the uh, Morpheus, the dream Lord stories. It's a lot of incredibly talented. And then people like doing introductions, like Lin-Manuel Miranda does the introduction to the book. And then weird Al Yankovic does a rebuttal to that introduction. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so many great people and it's just jam packed with ideas. I think. Well, we've learned all about Scott Ackerman. Now we're going to learn about his music knowledge as we look at the songs from number 10 to number one that K-Rock played back in 1986. But first, going to take a break. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our guest, Scott Ackerman. Should we start the, the K-Rock countdown? Are you ready? Sure. Are you yeah, ready? I'm, you ready I'm more than this? ready. <laughs> All right. I'm impatient. You're impatient. Okay. 
This is the conclusion to our look at 1986. These are the songs, the top 10 songs that K-Rock played back in the year that was 1986. And these are all your favorites, I think. Maybe. We'll see. 1986, my junior year of high school. I was about to say, where were you in 1986? So junior year in high school, you were and you were in Orange County, or where? Orange County, California. Yeah. So I'm a K Rock listener and uh, listen to the top 106.7 countdown every year. All of these songs, yes, I know very, very well. Okay. Did you have a favorite personality? Favorite DJ personality? I really, I mean, I loved Rodney. Jed the Fish, maybe, because he was. He'd been around for so long and, and knew Oingo Boingo and, you know, like personally and seemed to have really good taste and stuff like that. It's weird because 1986, 87 is where it's, hey, started to kind of slightly go a little off track where they got different DJs and they got the style of music around 86 and 87 changes a bit where they start using a lot of computerized drums and drums that sound like, you know, banging on trash cans and stuff like that. <laughs> I would say like up to 85 is more my jam, but uh, I'm perfectly willing to engage in 1986. Yeah, junior year. Yeah, you you know everything about music when you're a junior in high school. That's like <laughs> like hard, fast rules. We were all like that. Everything. I mean, all I all I really knew is all these bands that I really loved, like the Smiths and Aztec Camera and, and people like that. They started putting out kind of like their shittier records. So that's all I really know is like all of the bands I started to love started producing their records very like more commercially in a way, you know, and where were you going in the OC where, the, where were you seeing shows at? Okay. So my first concert that I went to was Oingo Boingo at the Pacific Amphitheater on Halloween. Brilliant. There you go. Um, that was in 1985, Halloween of 1985. And that one was on YouTube for a while. So I would like over the past few years, watch right. it occasionally. Yeah. You know, like I was there, I would go to uh, universal amphitheater sometimes. Like my friends and I were really into ska so i went to a place called fenders where i saw oh, fishbone and i think i saw gwen <laughs> stefani's first show with no doubt i remember her brother introducing her and saying this is my sister she's gonna sing with the band now <laughs> <laughs> but we used to come up to la and see ska shows occasionally we would come up uh, the long beach sports arena i remember we would see shows yeah. Yeah, places that was, like that that was my first u2 show is 1985 in the long beach Paris oh yeah. oh Unforgettable Fire. That was me. That was my Wow. That was a good one. I didn't get to see him until the Joshua Tree tour, and I was super far away. And I that was the only show that I've... I, I stayed up all night at the record store. Yeah. I got there the night before at like 5 p.m. or whatever, got in line, probably 20th in line because everyone was doing it. It's a big party. Everyone's up all night. Finally, at 9 a.m., tickets go on sale. And to have done that and then be like in the nosebleed still is just yeah. like... It just feels so like you wasted your time. Now, but then you were just happy to be there. Yeah. yeah. And it was part yeah. of the communal experience, I think, the being out there. And and they were all the same price, too. 20 bucks. 20 bucks yeah. front row, yeah. 20 bucks no, nosebleed. Yeah, yeah, it's all the same price. Yeah. And by the way, you guys, you were late to the U2 table. I saw them in 1983 on the war tour. Whoa. At the sports awesome. arena. Not to brag, but in 1983, I was seeing my friend's band who played U2 songs. <laughs> and what was the name of that band? They were called The Innocents. Oh, nice. Not, not with a S-E at the end, but with the E-N-T-S at the end. Um, I like I have to clarify that. <laughs> yeah. They were friends of mine, so... I was like, these guys are great. And I was like making t-shirt designs for them and trying to figure out how to silk screen prints and stuff like that. <laughs> and my dad was sort of like trying to help me with it. 
my dad was, he was pretty supportive of like these weird ideas I would have like sticking handlebars on a skateboard. I was trying to like turn my skateboard into a mini scooter at one point. He's like, okay, well you'd have to get like handlebars and a little motor for the back and all this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, now they just sell them as scooters. But back then <laughs> there weren't these things. You're ahead of your but That's time. really sweet. That's really nice. That is support. I'm touched. Did your dad drive you to shows? I had a, a friend who was two years older who introduced me to a lot of bands like the English Beat and X and stuff like that. And so he would drive me to shows for a while. And then when I got to be 16, then my best friend in high school, he introduced me to Aztec Camera and the Smiths. And so he would drive me to shows. I was not allowed to go to some shows, though. I was not allowed to go to the Queen is Dead tour. And that ended up, and my mom was like, just go to their next tour. Yeah. And they never toured again. Same with talking heads where like you could in the back of the LA times, there were ticket agencies that would allow you to put in a deposit for bands. And they would always be like talking heads and they never toured again after stop making sense. So yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know, we're going to talk about the K rock songs. <laughs> oh really? One through ten. We're going to go number 10. The band is talking heads. This is talking heads. Wild, wild life. fan of this the movie did you like wild well or uh, true story true story um, thank you yes thank you i rewatched it again recently i've i've maybe seen it three times in my life on video like a couple years i didn't go see it in the theaters that's how like middling the reviews were because right. i loved stop making sense i saw that in the theaters I saw it on video and then I saw it maybe a little while, like a decade later. And then I, I watched it again for our Talking Heads show recently. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's cool. I, I It's not like any other movie. Uh, weirdly enough. Oh, I remember one of the times I watched it was in a theater with Tim and Eric, uh, the comedians, Tim and Eric. They chose it as the film they wanted to show in a series I was doing about comedians' favorite movies. Hmm. It's a big influence on their comedy. I, I think it's okay. I don't know. Yeah. I have the record. I listen to the record way more than I watch the movie. So it, a lot of it is uh, some of the, the actors are singing Talking Head songs. Is yeah, that weird I, I mean, I have those versions now. They've put them out since then on the deluxe editions and on the uh, the recent Blu-ray uh, Criterion edition. They, they had a CD that came with it of all the actors doing all the songs. Uh, it's fine. It's like when I'm listening to a record, I'm always like really laboring over the choice of like, would I rather hear David Byrne sing this or John Goodman? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go with David Byrne usually. So I posted a thing about uh, how David Byrne now admits like it wasn't the best for breaking up a band. I'm sure you you read the Chris Franz book too, I think, right? Chris Franz. Okay. So Chris Franz seems like a lunatic. So (laughs) like (laughs) after reading that book, I'm now I'm like, Hey, David Byrne, whatever he had to do to get through it. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure like I've been in bands. It's tough. And I've been in, you know, sketch shows that are tough, you know, (laughs) and 
we did a Mr. Show reunion for Netflix. And it was like one of those things where the first meeting we had, it was all like, yay, we're all going to now act like mature adults in this situation. And then like within two days, you're acting exactly the way you did back when you were 20, you know? So funny. It's hard to imagine creatives staying together like that. I mean, such different personalities just to stay together for so long. It's kind of, it's hard to imagine. That's why when these bands, when they talk about, you know, we've been best friends because you can see how easy it would be to just I mean, heads. Look, but honestly, most great, great bands are just more than the sum of their parts because I, I'm trying to think of any great band whose singer went solo and those records were better. And I can't really think of any. What about, all right, do you like David Byrne's solo work? You, I like them. Yeah. And there are certain ones like Looking Into the Eyeball that I think are better than the others. But I wouldn't say that any of them are better than any Talking Heads record. And and Springsteen, you know, he had the E Street Band for so long. And then he said, okay, I'm going to go do my stuff for a good decade and a half, maybe. And those are his worst records, you know? And so, and Mick Jagger's solo career is so bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, and Morrissey, Morrissey, Morrissey could have done it. I feel like he was the closest to having sort of the same quality but then he got rid of Stephen Street and then also I think he just got too famous and too lazy and so his records have just like deteriorated and maybe the Smiths records would have the same way if they had stayed together but I don't know it's an interesting thing you know like I would rather listen to Talking Heads any day over a David Byrne solo record or a Tom Tom Club record yeah it seems like you'd be able to like oh okay well I'm David Byrne I'm the guy who writes all the songs I mean you know the album before this with Road to Nowhere and everything, like basically he had, he just wrote all those songs and played them on the piano for everyone. It was like, Hey, these are the songs on our new album. They went, okay, sure. (laughs) Um, So you think you, you're David Byrne, you're writing all the songs. Like I should be able to hire any drummer and they'll be able to do just as good of a job as this drummer, you know, but it, it doesn't work out that way. What, what is it about it? It, it also, maybe it ties into youth having something to prove before you get successful. And then once you are successful, you start being a little too controlling over it. I do think that's something about REM is like, I would much rather listen to any pre 1988 REM album before any of their other ones. Because I think once you suddenly are selling out arenas, you're like too careful about what you put out. You're taking chances in a different way. You're trying to be more adventurous in your sound or whatever, instead of just putting out like kick-ass songs, you know? You said you played in a band. How long were you in a band? Well, my high school bands, we were together for about a year when I was a senior in high school. And then they did the classic, broke up, and then reformed with a different singer the next week (laughs) to get me out. But then they only played like one more show or something. And then the drummer got the job to be the drummer in No Doubt. And so then I was in a, a band with my friend just for fun when I was in acting school. That was pretty much the two or three years that I was in acting school. We would we only had Mondays off. Mondays were dark. So we would go uh, up to this coffee shop in San Luis Obispo and play Monday nights. We would do two sets of two hours. I wrote a lot of songs in that period of time. And then I moved down here and tried to do that and comedy at the same time. And I played Largo was my last show ever where I broke two strings on the first song. And I was like, fuck this. And I just realized I had to focus on one, you know, so I focused on comedy. That was it. Broken strings gave you sent the message. Yeah. I was just like, we were never, you know, we didn't have 
good gear. And it was basically, mm. we were sort of like a kind of, I mentioned the proclaimers, not because we sounded anything like them, but just because it was like two guys with acoustic guitars kind of <laughs> doing those types of songs. But we just never, I could tell we were never going to be anything. What kind of stuff were you playing? Or were you writing? It was more like acoustic Elvis Costello type stuff. And what was really popular was, you know, grunge and then ska in the middle of the the decade. So I was just like, you know what? This is never going to happen. So I quit. I'm a quitter. I'm a coward. (laughs) You're not. You made a choice. That's true. Are improv groups the same as bands? Like you need, like if there's five guys, five people in in a group, it needs, if one person leaves and it's not the same. It's similar in the sense of like the same kind of weird group dynamics come up. Anytime anyone starts having any kind of success, any type of partnership, when suddenly there's money on the line or a claim or something like that, when people start noticing what you do, then it gets more serious. And then it gets to be more like, okay, we started this for fun, but now there are stakes and you got to start either like you got to take it more seriously or you got to step up your game or you can't fuck around it. You know, you can't be late all the time. All that, all this kind of stuff starts to become arguments. Whereas when you didn't give a shit and you were just doing it for fun, it was like, you're just hanging around in your apartment or whatever, joking around and doing stuff. It's a tough situation in partnerships. So yeah, improv groups have this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another partnership. Number nine, <laughs> This is uh, the partnership of Duran and Duran. Duran, Duran, the oh. t- Notorious. Durani, your fan? I just saw them at the Hollywood Bowl, if that's what you're asking. Um, I, all right. Okay. Where are you? Tell you what, where are you a fan in 1986? You know, I, I was a huge, huge fan in, in 82, 83, 84, 85. They put out Wild Boys and I was a little like, I don't know about Wild Boys. <laughs> 85, they did Power Station, which I loved that record. Arcadia, I was not as into. So then 86 rolls around and I'm sort of mentally out of Duran Duran. I remember this very distinctly. I remember Skin Trade being played on K-Rock and Duran Duran were kind of a joke at the time, really. You know, they got so popular and were were so popular with teenagers that I don't think they really took them seriously on K-Rock. They were played all the time on Kiss FM, right? The yeah. the top 40 station. Right. But on K-Rock, they didn't really take them seriously. And I remember hearing Skin Trade and the DJ saying like, I never thought I would say that I liked a Duran Duran song, but man, this song is really, really good. And I had not even got, I had not bought that record. I was so mentally out of Duran Duran at that point. And I was like, yeah, that is a good song. 
And um, then they started playing Notorious again. And, and and this is the record that really kind of started making alternative people pay attention to them again after they burned so brightly. You say they didn't support them, but on this 86 chart, John Taylor had a song, I Do What I Do to Have You. I do you. what I do to have you. <laughs> I do what I do to have you. You know that Did you one? remember this song? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. From nine and a half weeks, right? Yes. Did a junior in high school see nine and a half weeks? No, I think I caught up with that probably. Like when I turned 18, I suddenly was able to get a video card. And <laughs> so I just caught up on a ton of movies that I'd read about that I'd never been allowed to see. I would just, uh, my parents would be working <laughs> and I would just rent videos and watch The Deer Hunter and The Godfather in nine and a half weeks and stuff like that. Good for you. Doing good work there. Okay, so there's John Taylor's uh, Arcadia, Still My Flame. And also say the word. And then Andy Taylor's Take It Easy. Oh, yeah. Take it easy. Yeah, the the Eagle song. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. This was also, I think, wasn't this Holly? I can't remember. It was from a movie, from a a teen flick. I can't remember the name of the movie. but Let me look it up. That's right. You're one guy who you've got your albums. You don't sell those. Oh, American Anthem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the one with Mitch Gaylord. Janet Jones and, and Mitch Gaylord. Do it. Yeah, here's the, uh, I'm showing you the cover. Yes. Very hun- yeah. hunky gentleman on the cover. Oh my God. It. Well, it was, it was hunky Mitch Gaylord and, and, uh, and the, the beautiful Janet Jones and like, we'll give them a movie. Oh, yeah. They look gorgeous. And Wayne Gretzky's future wife. Yes. Yeah. They look gorgeous. And the movie, movie star movie was a horrible, uh, just the soundtrack and- was great. Andy Taylor did put out a record that year though, by the way, cause I have two songs from it, um, called thunder. And Steve Jones uh, features on both of the singles from that. Look at that. Oh, Steve Jones and Andy Taylor. Hey. Yeah. That's mm. a good, okay, very nice. Uh, so Notorious hit number two on the charts. The, what's the best line from the from this song, Notorious? Oof. Uh, do what I do to have you or something like that? I don't know. What don't, is it? Don't, monkey, <laughs> don't monkey with my business. Oh, don't monkey with my business, of course. <laughs> I, I still... Written before George Michael came out with the monkey songs. <laughs> yes, that's right. By the way, you are a George Michael fan, apparently, because oh, you've, yeah. got, you've, got two, you've got two dogs. And I, I looked on Wikipedia, which, of course, never lies to me. You have <laughs> two pets. And what are their names? Uh, George and Michaela and uh, Molly Ringwald. Perfect. Yeah. There you go. 1986. That's a, those are. Yep. <laughs> that's. What, did you, were you a junior in high school? Is that why you, you named your kids? <laughs> no, I think we got Georgia that? right after George Michael passed away. That's so bad. it was a tribute. And then I think Molly was already named Molly and we just added the Ringwald. I can't remember. Love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Number eight, another uh, artist who is uh, going on the road, in case you didn't know. This is Peter Gabriel. The song is Sledgehammer. Could have a big dipper Going up and down all around the bends. You could have a fun Big fan? 
I was not a fan when this album was out. I thought it was really? too commercial. Really? Okay. And I remember mm. my aunt playing it in the car when she was driving me somewhere going, do you like, and she was trying to relate to me. She's like, yeah. do you like Peter Gabriel? My aunt was a funny person because in the 70s, she was a hippie. In the 80s, she was a yuppie. In the 90s, she got into line dancing. Um, <laughs> but this was her 80s yuppie period. And that I was tracks. like, yeah. uh, no, I don't like Peter Gabriel. I don't even think I really knew about his Genesis uh, years or his first like four solo records, really. I didn't know anything. I knew Shock the Monkey. I did know that. But, you know, Sledgehammer came out. It was super big. And I was just like, it, it sounded so clean, like that digital recording. I was just like... And not into it. I've since really grown to love Peter Gabriel. I've seen him live once at the Santa Barbara Bowl. And um, that was a great show. He still sounds great. I'm excited for the the new record. Although I can't say that I love the first song, but uh, I'm excited to hear what he hasn't. I mean, it's been so long since he put out one. How addicted were you to MTV? Were you watching that every day? Well, we didn't have cable, so my friend had it. So I would have to hear about it. So I would go over to my friend's house you know, speaking of Wild Boys, that I remember watching the Wild Boys premiere at his house. <laughs> and it was very exciting. Like, oh, Duran Duran, new song. I didn't get MTV until 86, I think. And then, yeah, I watched it a lot. But, you know, when I was watching MTV is really when the David Lee Roth warrant kind of heavy metal videos were constantly in rotation, you know, and they made me horny. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I wouldn't say they were playing any really great alternative music on MTV back then. Have you ever experimented with stop motion for one of your shows? That was one good thing about Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show, was we would do like little tribute episodes. And we would always try to figure out like, oh, this is the episode where we do like, for instance, this is the episode where we do the entire show in one take uninterrupted. But we did one that had Sinbad Ray Harryhausen style animation in it. And... I had assumed it was going to be stop motion, but we found a company to do the animation for it. And it was really interesting. They did it with puppets that looked stop motiony, and they sort of jerked around and had the weird kind of Harryhausen, you know, frames missing kind of action to them. And then, then we erased the lines, the puppet strings. And then we did a claymation one as well, but I'm pretty sure it was <laughs> fake claymation where it was CGI claymation, not real claymation. <laughs> Gonna have to look that one up. Okay. It's the Stephen Merchant episode is uh, the Harry oh. House. Oh. Okay. Number seven, the B fifty twos, who are doing a residency in Vegas. This is their last uh, last shows, right? They're retiring. Yeah. Yeah. So this song, She Breaks for Rainbows. B-52s fan. Okay, so I loved, uh, again, my friend from high school who got me into X and the English Beat, he had the first two B-52s records, and I listened to those a lot. 
So this is again, keeping in the theme of bands starting to sound a little too commercial for me. Mm-hmm. This is not my favorite B-52s period. I, it's better than the uh, Modine period, certainly, but I cannot say that I'm a huge fan of like the Love Shack era okay. uh, B-52s stuff. So this is when they're veering into that for me. Have you ever seen the B-52s? No, I did sing Rock Lobster at my friend Paul F. Tompkins' 50th birthday. <laughs> that counts. Sure. Yeah. It counts as seeing the B-52s. You're yeah. right. No, um, I, and, and that's a seven minute song. And it was the only song I was singing. He had a whole bunch of his friends sing a bunch of different songs with a live band. I know Ted Leo was in the back, like playing guitar and oh stuff God, and a horn you. section and all this kind of stuff. Love that. And I, I went out full force and it's a seven minute song. And within 30 seconds, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking tiring. And I was just like out of breath within 30 seconds. Were you- was that your choice of the song? He wanted me to sing it. He chose it for me. We had one rehearsal, I remember. Um, and then did it. It was fun. It was really fun. It was fun to do. And I remember I went on vacation with Paul and his wife, Janie and some other people. He got control of the Spotify and just like played B-52's first records over and over, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which was fun. Um, we were in Hawaii and just playing the B-52's, but, uh, it was, it was fun, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of this period of their career. All right. (laughs) Number six, Gene loves Jezebel. The song desire in parentheses, come and get it. Come and get it. Come. I didn't know this was a parenthetical song. Yes. Does like Jezebel. I, I don't believe it started as a parenthetical. I think this version is the second version they recorded. Oh. And so I think they added the parenthetical to it. All right. Identical Ooh. twins. You brought up the proclaimers, but we also have Gene Loves Jezebel. Also identical yeah. twins. Twin bands. James. Also, Well, I know uh, you brought up uh, Psychedelic Furs. They're not twins, but they're brothers. Which always makes for a great band because everyone always gets along. That's what we've learned. <laughs> I saw that Space Hog Black Crows Oasis tour. Oh, I was I went to that too. Yeah, <laughs> that was left uh, before. Happened to get good Greek parking where I had in and in and out privileges. Left before the Black Crows. Oh, <laughs> there's a Jay loves Jezebel and a Michael loves Jezebel band now. It's, oh, uh, oh it's yeah, because the the brothers split up right, yeah, and they yeah, each they, have their own. They hate separate each other. Yeah. I think in the in the late eighties and early nineties didn't they still had hits, but it was one person's Gene Loves Jezebel, right? I didn't like them all that much when they were I mean on K Rock all that much. It was kind of a but I, I like their sound now. I, I I like the sort of like sleazy kind of guitar-y sound of it, but I, I wasn't a huge fan back then. Yeah. But I've come to appreciate it. It is kind of a predecessor to the big hair, yeah. and, you know, yeah. and the the pop hooks. I was kind of surprised to find this song in the top ten. I can't really put a finger on why, but it was really popular. I remember, but I can, I I remember never being happy when it was on. (laughs) (laughs) It just put you in a horrible mood whenever it came on. Yeah. It was always like, really? They're playing this again. 
And so it doesn't surprise me it's top 10 because they played it all the time. But I, mm-hmm. I don't, I, none of my friends and I really liked it or anything. Yeah. They are one of those bands where you hear it on the radio, but would you like to see this band? No, no, I'm not. Yeah. Interest me. Do I have all of their records? Sure. Oh, <laughs> of course. You're because right. I'm insane. Where was a Scott Ackerman doing his record buying in 1986? 86. There were two local records stores, independent record stores that I would go to, but mainly Tower Records in Buena Park. Did you have passes to Knott's Berry Farm? Did you go there all the time? I worked there for a little bit. Oh, I worked nice. at Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. Oh, nice. Was it a Steve Martin thing, like performing at all, or was it uh, just... Uh, uh, I was I was character at Disney, so I was like Goofy and Br'er Bear and stuff like that. Oh, my um, God. Nice. And Knott's Berry Farm, I was Halloween Haunt Security. Nice. Oh, that reminds me. That, so I was looking at your your CV of of what you've played in the past. I don't know if this is a ninja joke, but I but uh, you've played the police officer in Weird. You played the police yeah. officer in Curb. You played a police officer in Auntie Donna, Big Old House of Fun, Policeman Number One in Melvin Goes to Dinner, and a security guard in Michael Bolton's Big Sexy Valentine's Day Special. Here's yeah. a theme. Yeah, I okay. It it started out as coincidence, <laughs> and then at a certain point, around the Michael Bolton thing, it became an in joke. So Akiva and I both, Akiva Schaffer, who who co-directed the special with me from the Lonely Island, we both were trying to figure out what parts we were going to play, and it would pretty much was like, well, you have to play the cop because you always play a cop. So I I did, and then. Auntie Donna offered me the cop because I've always been the cop. And then Weird Al Yankovic wrote to me and said, I was able to convince the director that you should play the cop because you always play the cop. And so now it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. I love that. Okay. So you you take that experience from Knott's Berry Farm and bring it to life. Yeah, that's I'm really drawing on my Knott's Berry Farm experience when I was telling teenagers, hey, not that line, get in this line. <laughs> Let's focus on number five, the Smiths ask. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing all the things in life you'd like to. So if there's something you'd like to try, if there's something you'd like to try, ask me, I won't say no how. If you had a question and you could ask Morrissey anything, what would you ask him? Like, why don't you chill out and remember how cool you used to be? I don't know. (laughs) This song, I like this song. I, I, I remember DJing a friend's party. And I played this song and it could not have cleared the dance floor faster, <laughs> but uh, I like this song. This, this is like the cusp of Smith's getting too commercial for me, but I, I love hat full of hollow, you know, before this is uh, my favorite Smith's record. And uh, this is like eh, right around the bend where they start getting a little too. You were fine with sounding. them. You were, you were fine with them breaking up then forever and ever. Queen is dead. Okay. Just, Cut all ties. We're done. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel really bad for Johnny Marr. Like, he never found his kind of, like, I mean, he's a legend or whatever. Or whatever. He is great. Have you <laughs> but I was so a... excited when he was joining Talking Heads and the Pretenders and stuff like that. I was like, oh, man, this is going to rule. And then he just basically would play with them for a little bit. The The was the closest I think he got to 
like actually joining a band because I think he was in the band photos for that or whatever. Uh, have you seen Johnny Marr? Like solo performance is actually pretty good. I The one time I've ever seen him was he played with Neil Finn at the House of Blues and that was really cool. Yeah, he he would pop up at Neil Finn shows and play with them and they would do like covers of How Soon Is Now and stuff like that. And I remember being in the House of Blues and shouting, Johnny, Johnny. And I was like, I'm a 40 year old man. <laughs> do you like Morrissey shows? Have you gone to any solo shows of his? I've been to a few. I saw a terrible one at uh, Universal Amphitheater, like in one of in between one of his record deals. And he he, he played unreleased songs. Uh, no one knew what they were. And I saw I saw a pretty good one at Hollywood High. That was a pretty good one. I don't know if you remember that one. I think it was, was it a free show? I can't remember. I have to say his last record, I was kind of like, this is pretty good. I was writing my friend's who we both loved the Smiths and kind of don't like Morrissey now. And I was like, this is, it actually has some bangers on it. And she's like, I'm not going to listen to it. But um, <laughs> I thought it was all right. I it's, he's just, I don't know. Come on, Morrissey. Be that, cool. That, that's it. It's hard to, hard to reconcile the guy who wrote all those great lyrics from those records in the early eighties being the guy he is now, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. I know. Well, same with Van Morrison and Eric Clapton. Yeah. No, those two. Yeah. They've improved. They're, they're like way cooler now. <laughs> I'm an anti-vaxxer. I don't know if I oh, okay. told you anything. Oh, about oh interesting. Okay. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. <laughs> Who's got a cough right now. So, okay. No worries. Don't worry. <laughs> oh no, I'm going to die very soon. <laughs> okay. That's... But it's my body, my choice. <laughs> I don't mean the, the vax thing. I mean, it's personal where you stand with artists and what you're willing to accept from them. Like, can't do it with Morrissey. Yeah. Can't do it with Eric Clapton. What about Woody Allen? Can you watch a Woody Allen movie now? <laughs> I can watch his old movies. Yeah. I, I Okay. My rule, and it's not a hard and fast rule, but my rule is anything that they did before stuff came out about them is so inexorably tied up into your nostalgia and memory and what was going on at the time they came out and stuff that you can like that stuff. You know, you can like Smith songs. You can like Kevin Spacey movies from the <laughs> 2000, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can maybe even like R. Kelly songs, you know, like I think so much of it is tied up in like, like Michael Jackson is a good example. Like anytime I hear don't stop till you get enough, I'm instantly transported to the first time I ever bought a Walkman and was able to get FM radio suddenly and I put on the headphones and heard that song. that was the first song I heard you know everything is so tied up in that and music is so tied up in your emotions and your memories and that's why we listen to it so much and why we like the music of our youth so much that to cut ourselves off from that I think is too big of an ask so would I watch a new Woody Allen movie doubtful but I can watch Annie Hall and appreciate it and still like kind of go like, oh man, why, why is he talking about having sex with two 15 year olds? Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of my role. And I'm even more relaxed when it comes to musicians because it's like the, the band anal cunt isn't, uh, they aren't good role, role models. Oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we're not looking at bands to be good role models, you know, sorry to say both of those words. That was that the first one, the worst one that I could, could think of. Picked any band in the world and that's the one you went to. Like Jimmy Page, he enjoyed young ladies. Yeah, I mean, like, look, you hear songs from the 80s. Almost every song is like, she's 15 yeah. and she's so hot, you know, and it's like, whatever. It's rock and roll. You're not supposed to, like, idolize these people and go, wow, what good role models Aerosmith were. I think the hardest 
art form to overlook all that kind of stuff is stand-up comedy because that is so tied into a person telling you their viewpoints. You know what I mean? It's so hard to ignore. Like I can listen to a Michael Jackson, Jackson song and pay attention to the musicianship and the melodies and all sorts of stuff that he wasn't directly responsible for, but it's harder with stand-up comedy. Number four, drama rama, anything, anything in parentheses, I'll give you. I'll give you. <laughs> okay, what is it tonight? Please just tell me what the hell is wrong. Do you want to eat? Do you want to sleep? Do you want to drown? Just settle down, settle down, settle down. I'll give you candy, give you diamonds, give you pills, give you anything you want. Hundred dollar bills. I'll give you I like this song. Yeah. I like this band. They didn't really have any other hits, which is a bummer, but they never wrote any songs that were as good as this, to they, be fair. They had, they did have some good songs. Like they had Black, good songs. Yeah, Cigarette. they were really influenced by the Velvet Underground. Um, I remember when I went to Los Al High School for a year, I remember there was a band playing at lunch and they started playing this. And I was like, is this actually Dramarama? It didn't seem like too far-fetched to me that yeah. Dramarama might have played like a local high school. <laughs> It wasn't. It was just like a local band playing, you know, anything, anything as a, as a song. But I like this song. Still play it to this day, really. Have you ever gifted anyone something, someone, something a little embarrassing? Yeah, my wife, my wife, I found out pretty early on in our relationship that I was not allowed to buy purses for her. Oh, okay. Because the look of disgust on her <laughs> face. Because I would see a purse in like a department store and go, oh, that looks cool. Oh, I'll buy her a purse for Christmas. And then she'd get it and go like, Ugh. then I look at the purses she buys and I'm like, that looks like shit too. Like, what is the <laughs> difference here? But I don't have the eyes for it, I guess. Cause she'll look at one person and go like, that's gorgeous. And she'll look at another person and say, this looks like a piece of shit. So I don't, and, and there's no difference between the two to me. So I'm not allowed to buy purses anymore. I'm impressed that you ever were, that you actually went into a store and thought, oh, this looks really nice. I think I'll buy it. You would think that there would be some sort of, uh, you know, grace with with that. The fact that I tried, but no, yes. there was none. There was none. No, it was I'm... just pure hatred for the purse. That's mad respect to your wife for like, look, this is something you can't do. Please don't. That's one, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, nice I, try. Yeah. That, look, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good effort, but stop. For the love of God, please stop. Okay, so this is where K-Rock is like, you know what, we're playing whatever we want for this top 106.7. We're going to make Pain by Oingo Boingo, the number three <laughs> song from 1986. Welcome to my little world. Completely self-contained, yeah. Your problems, they will soon be Do you remember this song at all? Yeah. I'm ashamed to admit I wrote a really bad review of this album in my student newspaper. I love Danny Elfman. Look, I felt sort of betrayed as an Oingo Boingo fan that they were veering into very commercial sounding music because I just wanted them to do what they were doing for it. Like, had I known, oh no, Danny Elfman is not going to just continue to do Oingo Boingo. He's going to go do all these weird, interesting, cool things with his career. Like you should just treasure any album that he decides to put out. 
yeah, are, are the later Boingo albums bad? Maybe I, I, I like listening to them now, but at the time, no, I was not, I was not into it. This could be the one whose career flourished after he left his band. Oh yeah. It's so funny. When we were on tour last year, you know, I tour with a lot of younger comedians and one of them is I think 30 or so. And she, uh, Lisa Gilroy, and she was asking me, what's the first concert you've ever been to? And I said, oh, it's Oingo Boingo. And she was like, who's that? And I said, uh, I was trying to figure out, I was like, Dead Man's Party? She's like, uh, no. I go, uh, do you know who Danny Elfman is? And she goes, the composer guy, film composer? I, I go, yeah. She goes, he was in a band? Yeah. Like, no one knows what they are anymore. So, you know, she's also from Canada, I should yeah. mention. Yeah, so that's what we've talked about. We talked to other people from outside California, and they were like, Boingo Boingo was not, could not get a reaction at all from any, no. any song. But they were, they were huge here in California. Yeah. yeah. And only in California. It was crazy. But it was exciting when they suddenly popped up in movies like Back to School and stuff like yeah. that. It was like, wow, people are getting it. And then immediately yeah. then in 86, they put out this record, which. And Scott Ackerman destroys them with his scathing <laughs> review. His pen. <laughs> My poison pen. Hey boy, takes pen to do you, do you remember any sentence that are like any paraphrase? Can you quote yourself? Yeah, paraphrase. I do anything. remember like saying betrayal, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But um, that is a too brute. And yeah, I do feel bad. I feel bad about it because I, I am a big fan of Danny Elfman. I mean, it's the reason why I went to go see Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which then became a big influence. And Weird Al Yankovic told me when he did Danny Elfman's Nightmare Before Christmas show at the Hollywood Bowl, he told me that Danny had said to him, oh, I love the Comedy Bang Bang TV show because Weird Al was my band leader on it for a season. I was just like, holy shit, that's amazing. So I reached out to him to score the Between Two Ferns movie. And he got back and said that he didn't have time, but he loved Between Two Ferns and he would normally do it. And could he maybe just write one song for it or something like that? And it never worked out. But I'm, I'm a big Danny Elfman oh. fan. That's great. He probably remembered your review and that's why he kind of blew you off in the end. I, I have to think that that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. He's like, well, what about this? this and yes. he holds up a copy of it. <laughs> like framed copy. Like this is what has yeah. driven me for the past 40 years. Uh, here we go. Number two, a uh, band called Depeche Mode. This is a question of lust. Also touring this year. Are yeah. You, are you on the Depeche Mode bandwagon now? Tickets what? are a little too expensive for that. I got to say, I saw, I saw them at the Hollywood bowl, the last tour that, particular show I went to the set list was like right up my alley because it was chock full of like songs from ultra which is one of my favorite records by them 
and Violator. Both of those those are my I think the two best Depeche Mode records. This is not my favorite Depeche Mode era. I have to say, like '86 is like they were getting a little annoying for me, and I was not um not a fan of how often K Rock played them. So, Question of Lust, I think, is one of their better songs from this period, though. I think, uh, but not tonight is really good off that record. I think when they hit Violator in '90, that's when I was like, oh, I got to start paying attention to Depeche Mode again yeah. because I I'd, I'd been off them for a few years. Okay, so you didn't see him at the Rose Bowl. You weren't at that. That's Didn't go to the show. Rose Bowl. I did see them, I think it's Staples. And and I remember I, w- I was sitting on the aisle and down in front of me, standing up in the aisle was Keanu Reeves with a date. And I was thrilled by that. <laughs> that's that's your memory of yeah. Depeche Mode. <laughs> yep. I don't remember the show. I do remember watching Keanu Reeves put his arm around a woman. <laughs> I took a look at how much tickets were the other day. And I was like, I don't know if I can justify 300 or so, or 500 even for a better, for Depeche Mode. I don't know. Yeah. All, they, I mean, Dave Gahan is a charismatic frontman, but the other people are basically just pushing buttons. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe your wife will gift you uh, one ticket to, to see the band. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Get out of the house. We don't, please. Please. All right. That brings us to the number one song. This is the Pet Shop Boys. Suburbia. Lost in the high street where the dogs run roaming suburban boys. Mother's got a head to be done. She says they're too old for toys. Stood by the bus stop with a felt pen in the suburban hell. And in the distance, a police car to break the suburban. Yeah. Did you see them last year with New Order? I've never gotten to see them. My wife makes fun of me for liking the Pet Shop Boys. Anytime a Pet Shop Boys song comes up, she laughs at me. (laughs) I really loved West End Girls and Suburbia and stuff like that. Then I started to kind of fall off on Pet Shop Boys and then was really brought back in 93, I think, when Very came out. I Mm -hmm. thought that was just an incredible record. And it then put me on to like... Oh, okay. Now I collect everything from the Pet Shop Boys, like all B-sides, everything. But I've never seen them. They were doing a tour. I remember it was all gay artists. They were doing like a, not a festival. It was a tour where it was an all day thing and they were the headliners and I bought tickets for it. And then it sold so poorly, they canceled it. I remember never getting my hundred dollars back from it (laughs) and me being very upset about it. So I sort of have a thing where I'm, you know, a little against it. the Hollywood bowl show I think was happening right when my baby was being born. Wow. So I couldn't go. Yeah. Wow. Your baby is taking you away from a lot of shows. I tell you. It's tough. I looked at it too. And I was like, to my wife, I was a little like, do you think I could make this? And she's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so she, whenever the pet shop boys come on, she's like, don't these guys owe you a hundred bucks? Is that, I know. So if Neil Tennant is out there, I really want a hundred dollars back. <laughs> if you could pay me to see your show, yeah. I will do it. Yeah. So there won't be any you talking pet shot boys. I mean, I don't think Adam <laughs> likes them enough to, 
if it was me and April Richardson, we would do the Pet Shop oh, Boys yeah. in a heartbeat, but uh, not Adam. All right. Time to maybe find a new partner. I put that this from Wikipedia. It's been noted that this song kind of sounds like the theme to Elf. Suburbia and Alf. Do you? Do I never you really that? watched Alf. So what? What does Alf sound like? Alf sounds like Suburbia. I played the. <clears throat> oh, I, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I didn't watch Alf either, and I didn't know the theme until you included the link. Yeah. And um, now that's all I'm going to hear. Uh, the intro, and I love Suburbia. Yeah, the intro is great. Did you do? I know Adam did the greatest event in television history. Did yeah. You, did you do anything? Were you associated with that at all? Because it, when no. I saw when I saw the intro to Alf, all I thought of was the greatest event. In, uh, no, the, oh, did he do one for Alf? No, he, no, he didn't. But I feel like this could be. This is an opportunity to do that. I know he did like uh, Simon and Simon and Heart to Heart. Yeah, no, I didn't have anything to do with those. Okay, all right. Mainly because he never asked me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you just call him out. Yeah. Oh, I'll call him out in a second. Sure. Well, you know, now that you're joining, you and April are joining forces to do the Pet Shop Boys podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. Taking them to the curb. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right, Scott. I think we did it. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. And yeah. Thank you for taking so much time. I know you weren't. If you're not feeling well, I'm sorry. I hope you you feel better. Oh, thank uh, you. Well, I, I appreciate you having me. I I love talking about these types of uh, things. And uh, as someone who's perused the top 1067 lists for years, trying to track down every song on them, um, it's always fascinating to talk about this stuff. So thank you for having me. We did it, Holly. 1986. What a year, huh? And what a wrap up. That was so fabulous. What a wrap up. Exactly. I think uh, the, these top 10 songs had our top 10 artists from 1986, except for Gene Loves Jezebel, I think, maybe. <laughs> well, in hindsight, in further thinking, Scott was right. They did play a lot. They were always on K-Rock, so maybe they were, were worthy of a top 10 position. I mean, these artists, you look at them, Talking Heads, Duran Duran, Peter Gabriel, B-52s, Gene Loves Jezebel, The Smiths, Dramarama, Oingo Boingo, Depeche Mode, Pet Shop Boys. That is a list. That's a group. So that is pretty representative of K-Rock in 1986, I would say. I would see any one of these bands in 2023, except for Gene Loves Jezebel. Well, you'd have to see two bands if you were going to see Gene Loves Jezebel. That's true. That's true. <laughs> 1986 was a good year. That's a damn good year. If you haven't heard songs 106.7 to number 11, no one's going to stop you from reviewing these songs. Please go back and give a listen to it. We had some great guests talking about all these songs, learning a lot about lost classics from the year that was 1986. Oops. Very, very, very great year. I'm going to say a lot of varies. It was very. Uh, it was very, very. It was so very. 1986 was so very. Very good, Dave. All right. So how do they find different things going on in the What Difference Does It Make world? Oh, let me recommend that you check us out on social media. First at our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast, where you will find clips, outtakes from this talk with Scott, stuff you're guaranteed to enjoy. So check it out. 
we're wrapping up 1986. This is not the end of What Difference Does It Make, though. We have new episodes every Friday, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We have a newsletter that comes out every month. You can sign up at WDDIMpodcast.com. That's a fun thing to show up in your mailbox only once a month. Only once a month. But every week, we flood you with a new episode. So until next Friday, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.